0: All right, well, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining me today to talk about silos. I notice a lot of you are just uh, beginning to learn about bridges. So uh, let me explain You know why I got into this topic and, and, and uh, find it interesting. As people use our ideas and begin to develop uh, the work in their institutions, uh, before long, it kind of gravitates into maybe the different organizations in town that are using this should come together and build a collaborative. And that really means uh, getting out of the silos. Uh, So we talk about operating above the silos. And so today is about the the pros and cons, the things about silos that are really helpful, and then the idea of, well, how do we get above them and and collaborate more successfully uh, with one another? So uh, I'm using the a book by uh, Gillian Tett. She's uh, something of a hero of mine. She is the uh, managing editor of Financial Times in the US. And what really got me interested in her was that she was one of the few people to actually predict the collapse of the, of the housing industry back in 08. So she is uh, an economist, but she's also uh, earlier in her life was an anthropologist and so this book of hers is so interesting on this topic of uh silos so here's a here's my idea of a silo Uh, years ago uh, i worked for this company the new paris silo company and built silos it was after my first year of college and incidentally uh, david conrad's uncle john uh, and i were actually working at the same company that year so uh, those are poured concrete silos. Not that you need to care about that, but uh, silos are silos, right? So here are some other definitions. Uh, I think if you kind of scan down over those, uh, you know, the, uh, the idea of it being a system, a process, a development, a state of mind, so it can happen inside of our heads, uh, it is also a way of classifying and uh you know talking about cultural rules and so on and the last uh, bullet there talks about uh mental models and i was just you know we use mental models so much in bridges work <clears throat> that I, I was really pleased to see that uh, gillian Titt talks a lot about uh, silos as well uh you know we know that you know words go in one ear and out the other and they don't stay there very long but images and uh, you know, uh, drawings and those kind of things are the things that we can remember really well. So she's uh, <clears throat> she talks uh, that way too. So here are uh, some kinds of silos. The academic world. When you get into a discipline of a particular sort, and you're learning all there is inside that discipline, you are essentially, you know, inside. Of a silo, and it's so important to have these, and we want to we want to grow expertise in every field. So I think the universities and the, the departments uh, that come out of the at the federal level and the state level are sort of following the same sort of dividing our society into these different uh, academic or ways of uh, topics that we worry about in our society, and those just naturally turn into. Uh, ways for people to advance their learning and to advance inside of these different disciplines, inside these departments. And uh, so it happens in corporations and in all sectors and in nonprofits. So uh, here are some more kinds of silos that, that uh, she identifies. And I think that, um, I think, you know, of course, in our work, so much of our work has to do with class and uh, race. And so uh, these uh, silos are everywhere. The plus side to these are that we actually need to be able to categorize things. It's a complex world. So when we can categorize and organize things, uh, it's helpful. Uh, and you, know, you can see it's more efficient. Uh, you know, We have these expert teams. What I realized was uh, when I was first in uh, my, I guess you would say I've had two careers. I've been doing this for 20 years. And the 20 years before that, I worked in the addiction field. And um, at that time, the I was starting up an agency. So for me, my focus was entirely on uh, my job as an administrator, it was to build this this business and this way of treating uh, people with uh, addictions. And uh, I don't know if you've watched Star Trek, but in Star Trek they talk about uh, the prime directive. And I think the prime directive for an administrator is to perpetuate the existence of uh, their organization, to build it and perpetuate it. And so I was at first entirely uh, focused on uh, getting that uh, organization staffed and uh, getting our treatment modalities worked out and deciding how much prevention we were gonna do and and all of those things. And I was inside that silo totally. And it wasn't until those things were established that I began to really think seriously about, okay, what about partnerships in, in the community? And who do I, need to be working with. Well, the courts, of course, and the mental health agency and social services and and so on, uh, all became partners. And then after that, uh, we really began talking about how to collaborate in in our community. So so the longer I was in it, the more interested I was in uh, having collaboratives at at the community level and operating above the silos. And I can really understand why uh, somebody would be focused on their silo. You know, depending on where they were in their career and where they were inside that silo. So, so then there's the, the things that um, constitute some of the problems. And I think you know, bridges communities. Uh, you know, when we're trying to get people to come together above the silos, uh, we have to actually sometimes put up a little bit of competition. Uh, there's competition for money, and if you're in a big city, uh, there might be competition from other providers that. Uh, also work on poverty issues. So there could be a lot of wasted time and duplication, you know, with these different silos that we're in. And I think uh, when it comes to collaborating, if you can't uh, communicate well, then you just stay where you are. So this really means having new and better ways of communicating uh, with one another and sort of systems of communication. So um, if we don't take care of these bottlenecks and, and those kind of things, it just makes for a huge hassle for the people approaching our different agencies. I and mean, we just make things troublesome for them because we are operating in this sort of isolated way. So uh, it, so these are the, the things that I think that uh, sometimes, you know, keep us from doing our best work. If we talk about mental blindness or tunnel vision. Uh, when we're just focused on our own discipline and exactly what we do, and are not paying attention and cooperating with others, so I would say um, you might have a list of uh, issues that that are problems with silos. And when we get to the question and answer period, or if you want to put things in the chat, you know what what are the issues for you when it when it comes to the way our communities operate uh, around these issues of silos. So keep that in mind as we go ahead. Um, she refers to uh, this French fellow, uh, Bordeaux, and he wrote a book long ago, and he has these five principles of mental maps. He is, uh, I guess the way I know him is his book is called uh, Distinctions, and it's a book on class uh, and, and the rules of Class, and uh, he's a Frenchman, so he's writing about France, and he—it's such a deep dive into, um, you know, the hidden rules of class—is what we call them in bridges. It's such a deep dive into that, uh, but it's—it's it's worth knowing that this fellow was way out there, uh, long, long ago, establishing that these uh, rules of class exist. So. Again, he's talking about class systems uh, there. As you see, uh, classifications under number one there. Um, they, I think, it's really important to to realize that so much of what is created in these class structures has to do with protecting the elite and perpetuating it. So, you know, I think in the U.S. we we don't like to think like that, but the more distinction there is between our classes. Uh, and there is a huge divide between the classes of these days. That uh, some of it has to do with uh, protecting that status. So, just the idea that we're talking about mental models, uh, we're talking about uh, uh, society and policymaking, and and uh, you know, uh, and then the downside here, number five, is we get trapped in the mental models that we inherit, and so we want to become more conscious. Of these mental models because uh, they are part and parcel of this idea of uh, silos. So uh, Gillian Ted is talking about the anthropologist mindset and the way to look at the world. So uh, she looks at it from the bottom up, the micro level patterns that exist there. And if you think about Bridges' work uh, and getting ahead, you realize that uh, that we are starting by going directly to people in poverty and saying, what is poverty like in your neighborhood and where you are? And they are the ones that are providing us with the information that we need to properly understand the conditions that we're in. So I think some of these things kind of uh, are familiar to us in in, uh, Bridge's work and in getting ahead. So the idea being, uh, you know, keeping our our minds open uh, to new information. And I think when we do bridges trainings, and we are first finding people who are in our audiences, we're we're bumping up against the uh, the mindsets that they have, and are exposing them to new ways of looking at uh, class and poverty. So we we pull it apart, you know, and we take a look at the mental models of class. We look at the four causes of poverty we look at language issues, we look at the hidden rules of class. And all of this is that decoding and looking at the minutiae, but also finding the big patterns that exist out there too. So continuing that, the, uh, of course she says we can celebrate the ideas you know, about how different we can be and how wonderful things are. And I think that's part of our work too, is to uh, look at each other's uh, class structures uh, and, and, uh, and hidden rules and begin to appreciate where people are coming from, taking the judgmentalness out of our uh, natural kind of reaction to each other sometimes and beginning to use this new information to build relationships of respect. So those are the patterns that we look for, uh, starting from the bottom and working our way up in the work that we do. So it's, uh, it's a way for us to decode uh, the world and and to uh, design programs and policies in more skillful, skillful ways. So uh, one of the things that she brings up is uh, having, developing as an anthropologist, an insider-outsider point of view. And what I, what I'd like to do is for you to think about these things in your own life, as to how much of an insider-outsider point of view do you have so she says, when we immerse ourselves in another world, we not only learn about the other, but can look back on our own lives with fresh eyes and a clearer perspective, we become insider outsiders. Now, each of you has your own story. And some of you you know, may have uh, some of you maybe uh, are immigrants and some of you come have lived in very different places around the world and some of you have lived in different classes. So. You know how what's the insider outsider uh, thing with you some people get that all important insider outsider perspective on life because they've been tossed across borders or moved between different worlds and then above all we need to leave ourselves open to collisions with people and ideas outside of whatever silo we inherit or inhabit i i think So much of our work is to bring people together to work on poverty issues across class lines, race lines, uh, from the different sectors we work in, and our different political persuasions. All of these are silos all over the place. And and when we can uh, give up a particular point of view, just the insider point of view, and not uh, be willing to see anything from the outside, of course, are going to be stuck behaving the same way and and trying to solve problems with the same strategies again and again. So we really, I think, should be in our own heads uh, when we're training people in bridges and we're working and getting ahead, is to move towards that appreciation of the insider-outsider outside, experience. So uh, give some thought to that. I bet each one of you has a story to tell on this very, very subject. Uh, you know there are some people and and uh, I've met a few uh, that are uh, were raised in a particular neighborhood in a particular way and uh, and in, and let's say they're middle class or upper middle class and I'm sure you've heard this phrase before but uh, there are some people that uh, who were born on third base who think they hit a triple and I think sometimes uh, the people that are in that, situation are people that are in an insider mindset and have not had a chance to look at the world through someone else's eyes. So uh, our work is a lot about uh, about helping people into the insider-outsider point of view. So uh, at the rate I'm going now, we're going to have plenty of time for discussion. I, I hope I'm not going too fast through these, and you're welcome to interrupt and ask questions if you like. Um, some of this was uh, covered in a book I wrote called Bridges to Sustainable Communities. And it's uh, in, in the sixth chapter, there are these different things that, that I bring up. And, and if you're interested, you can kind of go look at some of that. But um, the one thing I'd like to dwell on just a little bit is the fourth bullet down. And that is uh, about a city named Curitiba in uh, Brazil. I um, had the opportunity to go there in uh, January of 2001. And I went with a a business mission from Ohio. And this all came about because uh, the first lady, um, uh, Taft, uh, was uh, a friend of ours. She worked in the addiction field and in prevention particularly and uh, she heard me talking about Kurishiva because I had, I had read about it in a book called Natural Capitalism, and I was so excited about how they did things there and the wonderful things they were doing uh, with people in poverty and their way they looked at people in poverty and interacted with them. And I went on and on about it. And um, and uh, when she got back to her office, she got a hold of me and she said, "You know, I." I heard you talk about Curry Chief, and I came here and found out that there's a business mission uh, going down there from Ohio. And uh, I wish I you know, had the courage to just go, can I come? But um, I thought that'd be pushing a bit much. So Terry Ducey-Smith, who's a, worked for me and is also a co-author of Bridges, uh, she went to Hope and she said, hey, <laughs> Bill would love to go. So I got to go. And uh, so I was the, the poorest person on that mission, let me tell you, because when businessmen go with a governor to go to South America to meet, uh, run through several countries and talk to other big businessmen, uh, you're talking big money, and uh, it really strained my capacity to uh, handle the hidden rules of the wealthy. the um, The things I learned there, though, were just great. Um, Hope and I would uh, meet with the uh, the heads of the the groups that have made these changes, we'd meet with them for a couple of hours. Then we'd jump in cars and go to see what it was like for real. So let me just uh, talk about this because uh, at the end of this, it comes back to silos. So uh, the, the man that made all of this possible was a fellow named uh, Jaime Lerner, and he was the mayor of, of uh, the city, and he uh, was a an architect and a city designer by by profession. So he wasn't a legislator that came through. Uh, often in America, there people go to law school and <laughs> end up as politicians. But he has, had a different way of looking at things. And he would use what are called charrettes, interdisciplinary charrettes. And that is used with architects. And what, uh, what you do is you bring, if you're going to build a building, you bring everyone together that's uh, got a part in it. So the plumber and the electrician, and you can imagine everybody that has puts hands on that would be in the room to uh, talk about the fine-tuning and the planning of how that building is going to be put together and in what sequence and what order and so on and so forth. So this is already taking people out of their disciplines and bringing them into a room where all of it is talked about. Everybody's there to talk about these things. So these charrettes are a brilliant way of, of doing business. So the budget, and I think this is just um, crucial, uh, there was one budget. And and I mean for the whole city, whether, whether you're talking about health or transportation or safety or uh, you name the sector, there was one budget. And when they sat down with what to do with the the money each year, uh, it meant that nobody had a fixed amount that they could claim. And, you know, that is one of the most silo shattering things that you can do. So they would would put their heads to solving these problems. And one of them is uh, the bus system. And if you were to Google this city, the first thing they're gonna tell you is this fantastic transportation system that they put together. And the stories that went into are just amazing. Uh, my, my favorite story is that when, they, when, when the mayor and everyone decided that they were gonna take a, a 12 or 14 block area and make it a walking area in the, in the, in the old city, And they weren't going to build a four-lane highway across the top of it, which was the plan. The people with the cars were so incensed that they decided on the day that it was meant to be closed that they were going to drive their cars right through there and they were going to resist and they were going to keep it open for cars. And, of course, uh, Lerner heard about this. So when they arrived with their cars, the streets were full of children sitting in the street with coloring books, coloring, to stop that from happening. Their, their bus system is designed to move lots of people very, very quickly. Uh, they, they'll have two or three buses actually uh, in line with each other, like a little train connected to each other, that pull up at a station that is uh, raised off the ground a little bit so that anyone getting off the bus doesn't waste time stumbling down the stairs. Uh, there's a little drawbridge that drops down. You you exit onto this platform and you move you, like you would on a train station. And uh, you can exit and get on this so quickly. And when they go through town, the bus driver manages the traffic lights. So everything is bent for the buses. And the system is designed to take people to the outskirts of the city and take the workers out to the employers that are from American companies and Western European companies that are running factories there, their employees were delivered to them by this magnificent bus system that worked all the way through the night so there weren't anybody left without a ride home after work. Amazing kind of thinking that went on. Uh, They recycled everything Uh, because they were all sitting there together. they, They decided they were going to change the wooden... Uh, telephone poles and make concrete ones and then they had all these leftover uh, poles well somebody who uh, was aware of this quarry this empty quarry that was just sort of sitting there said we could use those to build a stage and seating and actually turn it into a music uh, venue and and have people come in in there and do music I mean the the um, Housing for people that uh, were in poverty, the idea was to move them into ownership as quickly as they could. So they did the Habitat for Humanity sort of sweat equity, learn some financial literacy, help build your own place. There's five models of houses that you can choose from. It has a little wall around it. You have a little yard. And for every little area that they built of these homes, in the middle was a child care center that was open 14 hours a day and provided food to the children for uh, four times a day. So you're taking care of your child issues. You're taking care of your transportation and your housing. Uh, these things are just, you know, to go and visit the, these things and see them happening on the ground, just amazing. Uh, uh, one of the hassles about living in poverty is that the everything is a hassle. You know, it takes more time. Uh, you know, you have to take two or three buses to get someplace. And because you're doing that, you're spending more money. Uh, when things break down, you know, you have to go to uh, predatory lending to get money. Everything you do around money costs more. Uh, there's hassles, hassles, hassles when you're living in an under-resourced, non environment. So they have a single phone call to schedule an appointment for any kind of support services. Uh, one place, and and you can re. Uh, you can say, "Hey, I'm going to miss my appointment. I need to reschedule." All that can happen that easily. They um, let's say, "Oh, some of these things I think are just amusing." Uh, they have a bit of flooding going on there, and so instead of building canals, they actually created wetlands, which are turned into parks, and then they mow them with sheep instead of <laughs> with gasoline-driven mowers. They have a 24-hour street, and instead of taking children that are should be at home. And because they broke a curfew and turning it into a legal problem, they made a safe street. And I went there to see this in the middle of the night. On on this 24-hour street, there are places where kids can go, uh, cafes and uh, computer cafes and things like that. And the cops aren't there to arrest you for being out after curfew. They're there to protect you. There must be some reason why you're not at home. So it's there to help you the uh lighthouses of knowledge these uh, these are literally lighthouses uh, not huge but they do stand up you know a couple of stories at the bottom is a computer uh, room and a little w- uh, work area and where books can be seen and kids go there to do their homework and then at night there's a policeman standing at the top of that uh, lighthouse looking after your neighborhood. Now, these are amazing things, and they come about from uh, Jaime Lerner uh, says this. If people uh, feel respected, they will assume responsibility to solve other problems. And this was uh, something I ran into uh, before I wrote Getting Ahead. And you can see the influence this had on me, the idea being that people in poverty are problem solvers, uh, one of the things that they did in, in Curitiba was uh, they do recycling. I, like I'd never seen in 01, I'd never seen that level of recycling going on. And what uh, the way they get the recycling to the recycling center is that people that need food can just pick up the recycling that's there on the street in a big bag and deliver it. And in return for delivering it, they get uh, food. I guess you would call them food stamps, but it's you can go and use those to buy food wherever. Uh, so those are the kind of brilliant things that came about in in Curitiba. Now, I the reason this was possible is that they didn't operate in silos. Is that when people put their heads together, you weren't just talking about the problems in your silo that you wanted to address. But you were also thinking of the problems or the opportunities in someone else's silo, and it was like being in a silo-less uh, city. And to see what they did with that, I think that the main takeaway for me was uh, was how they did their planning. So, one of the best examples, I guess, I've I've seen of of dealing with silos. So. Uh, how can we apply these ideas? Um, I think, first of all, you know, developing the insider-outsider uh, way of thinking around class, sectors, neighborhoods, communities, political persuasions—these uh, are things we're actually good at already. You know, I think we just need to be uh, maybe a bit more intentional. And then, uh, you know, identify societal classifications. Well, we do that, isn't that exactly what we do? Um, and I think probably more than anything, uh, I, it's wonderful things that we can get out of our institutions that use bridges work. We can get much better outcomes and we're seeing that more and more. I mean, in the workplace, uh, the the model that Ruth Weirich is working on, workplace stability, the development of small dollar loans and ERNs to go with it. You know, all of those things inside institutions are great. But when you pull together whole community collaboratives, you can really, really do a whole lot more. So, um, so there are five lessons here that I'll take you through, and then we'll stop and uh, take questions. And so, uh, lessons learned: first lesson, uh, keep the boundaries of teams uh, in big organizations flexible and fluid. So, if you're in a big organization, how siloed is your organization? You know. So these are things that. And those of you that are working can look at these things and go, yeah, that that bullet point matters to me. Um, Bring people from different teams that can collide and get to know one another. And, you know, this is what. um, I I think the tech world is really good at is creating uh, creative spaces and ways of people kind of bumping into each other, Uh, rotate staff. Uh, between different departments, so that they just don't get into their one space all the time, and the physical spaces where people can actually uh, get to see each other and interact. Uh, a lot of this takes place, you know, around the coffee station and, and places like that. Anyway, isn't that when where people talk about creative things? Um, they the create the collaborative pay system and incentives. Um, I don't. I don't know enough about this to get into it in, in a deep way, but I think that what they're, what, uh, they're talking about here is having sort of a, uh, a compensation uh, system for departments and not just for individuals. So, so there's sort of like an incentive to, to be creative. Um, the data sharing is just hugely important. And, and in our collaboratives, we're, we're suggesting that you use Charity Tracker uh, we would like to see that happen across the country, or Charity Check, or Empower. It doesn't matter which, uh, but that if we have a data system inside a community, and uh, everyone is kind of contributing to it, uh, that stitches your collaborative together. You know, so you can have CEOs come and go, uh, and and when that happens, sometimes your collaborative falls apart because your new CEO doesn't buy into it. But if there's already a data system that you're inheriting. Uh, it keeps you more aligned with what was done before. So uh, so data sharing, certainly, um, and then having people uh, be able to sit sit down and talk about the meaning of it. So I always think of the data we collect as, as how to analyze what's working, what isn't, and turn it into a continuous uh, quality improvement activity. So, uh, and then provide cultural translators who are able to move between... Uh, the silos. And, and if you think about uh, some of the things that have happened, uh, I think, uh, for example, uh, getting had graduates that are, are working as uh, you know, sort of navigators and help other people understand things. I mean, what's happening there is that we're translating class issues in the workplace and in the healthcare settings and in educational settings. We're getting better at working across class lines by being translators for each other. So uh, the fourth lesson, you know, find different ways of uh, of categorizing things, of naming things. I, I think that in Bridges work, uh, we want to be open to innovation, and and so we've kind of Bridges is not a program in the first place, so it's it's not going to be canned. It has to be applied where you are locally. Uh, given your circumstances and, and the opportunities, the resources you have. And I think the idea of innovation is is so exciting that people like doing bridges because at the end of the day, they they created something great. They get to come to a national conference and do a, a session on it. So um, the fifth lesson, uh, use technology to challenge the silos and rearrange information in different ways. And I, I think that's... Uh, you know, I think we don't want to become stale in bridges. I think that we want to keep the door open for new people and new ideas to come in and to inform us. And I think that sort of thing has been going on. Uh, here are a couple of stories. I don't know if anyone is on our call here today from Lancaster uh, County. But if you are, uh, jump on the mic and you can talk about this. But uh, I've been... Uh, interviewing people from around the U.S. about um, you know, how they do what they do, and Chuck Colt is someone I, I think has a, a really uh, interesting story to tell. I uh, I love his idea about um, when when he's trying to build a collaborative and bring in new organizations. He's not saying to them, "Come to us and do what we do. Uh, help us build." Our initiative. What he does is he says, um, "Let's go to coffee together. Uh, what are you doing? Uh, what's not working for you, and how can I help you?" Uh, so he he is about uh, giving up autonomy. In other words, uh, not branding this to himself or to his own organization, but but allowing the input from other people. Uh, And he's careful about the idea of an agenda. You know, I think uh, in getting ahead, you know, we make a big deal about being agenda free. And in other words, allowing the investigators to uh, make whatever they will of the investigations they do into getting ahead. There's no right or wrong answers. You know, take this information, use it, build your own future story. We're not going to tell you what you should do. And that agenda, that keeping things agenda free, uh, he says, uh, if I get something out of it, it's an agenda. And so we're trying to keep it free of that. So in other words, how can I help you? And instead of joining my agenda, let's work towards your, what you need to do. And I think, uh, that's kind of at the heart of, uh, of of the thinking about building a collaborative or being above the silos. Um, I, I love this. Uh, he says, uh, middle-class achievement builds programs. Uh, poverty relationships build uh, relationships. Poverty, driving forces of poverty are relationships. So we build relationships when we come from poverty. and middle class, we build programs. And it makes me laugh. The, the, uh, we're really good when we put the two together because if you build relationships and you're working towards an achievement, you get much better, much better outcomes. So this is a, you know, I was saying how he meets people for breakfast and it makes it all about the relationships. And in the end, you know, what can we do for our community? Another person I learned a lot from is Mike Sicoscio in Schenectady, New York. Um, they bring people together from, uh, from across the sectors. They have eight particular sectors that they've named and they have 30 organizations in- involved in their collaborative. Uh, But he talks about building indigenous relationships and he's talking about people in neighborhoods and he's talking about people in poverty and having and watching people from those uh, sectors take leadership roles. And and, and watching that happen is just one of those wonderful things when you see someone fulfill their own future story. So. um, So we see problem solvers where we once saw problems. I think that's a common thing in bridges. Uh, We connect. Our sectors, uh, the way they did it in Schenectady is to have from each organization, have the person who's most turned on about Bridges' work become the champion that represents their organization and come together for regular meetings with the other champions and essentially a charrette, you know, the kind of thing that we heard from Jaime Lerner. So uh, he has these great metaphors. A movement is like a river, can't be controlled, but merely influenced. Again, this is just a more poetic way about talking about uh, about agencies, uh, you know, about being agenda-free and you know, kind of like being driven by our goals instead, being able to influence things in a different way. So, shift from seeking control to seeking influence. I I think that this has a lot to do with what our where our leaderships, our leaders evolve into, right? Uh, and it's it's a different feel. Uh, it when when you see a bridges initiative of this sort it's i think more sustainable because of this style so uh you know back to mike uh, the from hierarchical organizations to diverse networks so you begin to trust in uh, the others instead of trying to control things uh, the other person's uh agenda is your true north this goes to what Chuck was saying about find out what their agenda is and, you know, try to help them and then discover personal and organizational agendas. And so being open about these things. So uh, you meet the needs of others. Don't sell the value of what you have. You need to fill their needs. Now, doesn't this fit a theme, you know, about uh, uh, two of the most innovative and uh, uh, projects that we have going in in the U.S. So, Here are just some ideas to address silos in in the Bridges environment. Uh, We already talked about class, race, political persuasions coming together, uh, bringing all sectors together that we possibly can. Uh, We we want to have uh, national level organizations coming together to work at this too, which is still uh, out there, us thinking about bringing more of them in, in terms of institutions. Uh, We have a couple of them. Uh, St. Vincent de Paul is one. Uh, and, and that's probably the, the biggest one with the most people and the most sites. Um, and then build learning communities, uh, learning communities inside your own organization, learning communities inside your in your, in your community or city or county, uh, building learning communities in your state. Uh, so we want to be able to uh, take all the best practices and, and come together and just keep innovating like crazy as we go. So, uh, I've left us with uh, about 15 minutes and would love to have you come on and uh, speak. If your microphones are working, I imagine that you have the technology to do that. And uh, if there's anything here that's kicked off thinking or any kind of questions you have or comments you want to make, I'd love to hear them. I'm interested in your insider outsider experiences. If you want to talk about that? Uh, Michelle says, uh, what are your suggestions for reaching those in, com- in a community with uh, who protect their silos? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, well, I guess if, if you uh, were in a place where people come together, you could actually bring up the topics without directly speaking to them, right? You could just uh, talk about silos in a generic way, uh, kind of like what's happening right here. Uh, and and uh, find people who agree with you about silos, and and uh, the more people you get talking about it, the more energy it'll have, I would imagine. Uh, how do you balance uh, taking the other sector organizations' agenda and having a collaborative focus or purpose? Uh, well, I think the the uh, in in a bridges initiative, and that's basically what we're talking about here. Uh, what you what you start with is people that are attracted to bridges in the first place. And then, uh, and I think part of that is having a common language. So we have a common understanding of what poverty is, what the causes of poverty are, and you know what it's gonna to take to deal with poverty in an effective way. And basically, uh, what we're talking about there is, poverty is so such an unstable space that everything we can do to stabilize that environment, the better. And the easier it will be for someone to build their resources. Our definition of poverty says that it's about a high quality of life. It's about eleven different resources that you can build. So if you want to deal with poverty, you're going to stabilize the environment and build resources. And uh, so I think that is a common language, and I think that's that's a huge part of this right now. Every sector I can think of, everything from you know prenatal health to in a hospice along that entire continuum is our uh, issues of class and for people in poverty uh, every one of those sectors is is a different set a different sort of conditions that people have to deal with so every sector has to be good at dealing with the people they serve or interacting with that are in poverty and imagine if in your co- community everybody shared the same language how much easier it would be to operate above the silos and to have, a, you know, common common approaches and and be able to, you know, stamp out duplication of services, become much more effective with each other, without, uh, you know, grasping uh, parts of programs uh, uh, just because that's what we do. Do you guys see this as a problem in your community? Is it, you know, is it getting in the way? And then I'd love to hear from you. The stories I'd like to hear about are, of course, what you're doing to collaborate and get above the silos, anything like that, I'd love to hear. Uh, I'd also like to hear what people say about the insider, outsider point of view. Um, I, you know, the idea that we bring people together across these different backgrounds, I think that's such an enriching kind of experience. And, uh, it frees people up, you know, to think differently. So I'd love to know your stories. I I just think there must be, for every person, there must be a different story that goes with that. Uh, Jen said, I worry that we might uh, see a back, a backslide in participation as organizations and agencies anticipate funding cuts. Well, you know, that's a, that's a good reason to collaborate, isn't it? Uh, and you know, I think the idea, of there's, there's a lot of duplication that uh, goes on in bigger cities anyway, um, and in mid-sized cities. And and if we can get really good at collaboration, we'll be more efficient too. So I think that might pull us together rather than, I, I mean, you know, that the tendency is to grab your money and run, you know. <laughs> you know, everybody's going back and they just stop talking to each other and so on. I don't have enough time for that, you know. But I think we need to persuade people that this is exactly the time when you need to collaborate. You get a lot more efficiency if you kind of behave the way they do in Curitiba. Let's see. Uh, Somebody said people in our community are talking about mandating getting ahead when they hear that they're going to get uh, a program off the ground. No, no, we don't mandate getting ahead. Uh, In fact, uh, sorry about the dog. Uh, I think everything should be attraction through attraction. Everything, uh, you know. I would say don't even order your. You can ask your staff to come to a training, but don't. You can't tell them to like bridges, right? Uh, just work with the people who do like it, and uh, allow people to come into getting ahead agenda free. You know, treat them as you would. We say people in poverty are problem solvers, and we need their help. Treat them that way, and uh, and don't require uh, anything of them. When you're agenda free, you are free. You free people up to make the argument for change themselves, and what they do is going to be authentic. It's not going to be something that was foisted on them. Yeah, yeah. There's some things that we we are so accustomed to. I I think that, you know, there's this thing about rankism. You know, uh, I think that we pull rank on on uh, people in poverty all the time and don't even know it. And and it's because we've normalized our middle classness. You know, so we have security. At work, uh, we have security at home, uh, financial security, and we're used to running things. I mean, we run the schools and all the institutions, and uh, we end up um, sort of assigning duties to people that that come into our organizations, usually people in poverty, and um, and because because of that. I have the power to do these things. It's so invisible to us. It's just so built in that the only way we we would ever find out how annoying it is, it would be to be on the other side and have people always telling you what to do and you know, kind of assuming these things about you. And that kind of pulling of rank is something that happens automatically. And that's why I go on and on so much about uh, being agenda free and allowing people choice and so on and so forth. I I think it's much more. Uh, respectful and uh, su- uh, successful. OK, well, um, let's see what a couple people were typing. And if uh, there's any more comments to, be, to make, we'll do it. But we can close up uh, any any time here. We have graduated over 200 people from getting ahead since 13. It was an awesome program. If you do it right with understanding, it is respectful about the people and their thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. It's real. you're enjoying you're enjoying the fruits of the, their future stories right <laughs> okay all right. you all thank you, you all very break. much thanks again for joining us we'll see you next time bye folks thanks phil